Very good. I'd invite you to open up your Bibles to John chapter 1. That's where we're going to start, but then we're also, uh, if you want to put a kind of a marker or something like that, in Mark chapter 6, we're going to end up there today as well. So, uh, you know, I'm just going to go out on a limb here. So how many people in this room, like, really want to live a good life? How many of you would want to say, you say, you want to, I want to live a good life? How many people? I, th- I would think that all of you would raise your hand. Now, we all probably have different definitions of what a good life looks like, but I think in general, we all would say, uh, you know, I do. I want to live a good life. How about a great life? How many people want to live not just a good life, but a great life? Yes. Yes, okay, we're all, we're all in the boat for living a great life. You know, I, it's funny, I don't think I've ever run into anybody who has said, I, you know, I'd really love to just live a mediocre life, right? Like, you don't, you don't come across people who are like, yeah, you know, if I do okay, that's okay. You know, I'm, I'm good with that. No, I think, like, in general, we all want to live a really great life. That's, like, what we go after. So there's a fair question then, like, what does it mean? to live a great life. You know, um, when I was a kid, and it's funny, I kind of have thought about this and and went back and looked at the news article. So where I come from, you know, uh, when you're in kindergarten and they ask you, what do you want to be when you grow up? And everybody has to, fills out the like the little form that says, okay, I want to be like a doctor or something like that. So where I come from, they put that in the newspaper, right? So you get, you get your name and your profession in the newspaper. And so I remember like when I was a senior in high school, going back and getting this newspaper and looking at it and uh, the things that uh, people wanted to be. So uh, that's because we're asking, like when we ask, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like generally what kids are thinking is, you know what? It would be really great if I could do that. Right? Like, this would be a great life if I would be able to do that thing or perform that task or whatever it might be. So, uh, so here are some examples, because these are the examples that came up in my, uh, my class. So uh, I got several people who wanted to be firefighters or police officers, right? Like, that happened a lot. And so they're thinking like, oh, well, you know what? If I could be heroic, if I could be brave, if I could sacrifice something for others, then that would be really great. Some people wanted to be teachers, right? Because what did they, and usually that's because they had a teacher who had influenced them, right? So if I could influence some other kids, if I could show kindness to them, if I could encourage learning, that would be really great. Uh, Where I come from, a lot of people, like a disproportionate number of people, wrote farmer on their their little thing, right? A lot of people wanted to be farmers where I came from. And why did they pick that? Because they wanted to honor the family, that they came from. They wanted to be able to feed people, right? They wanted to be able to resource their communities with food. Uh, Some people, you know, they want to be president. Some people want, some people are excited just to be parents, right? To be able to raise kids, to love them, to care for them. I'll tell you what I wrote. I wanted to be a scientist, which is crazy. When you see my science grades, they're like the lowest grades out of all the other grades that I got. But I wanted to be a scientist. I wanted to like use my brain. You know, I had this like picture of myself in a lab with all of these like beakers and tubes and different things. And I was going to like make cool formulas and I was going to make new discoveries, right? So it's notable. Like, uh, you know, when we all talk about what we wanted to be, I think what we wanted is that like we wanted to make an impact on the lives of others. Like, as my generation, we process what do we want to be when we grow up, 
we thought, well, we want to do things that make an impact, right? The greatness of our lives will be measured by who we're able to impact or influence. That's the message that we believe. And it's interesting that for most of us, we did not become the things that we said we wanted to be in kindergarten, right? Because some people, some people like just went and made money. Some people became entrepreneurs. Like some people got really involved civically. Some people focused on supporting their families. Some people lived it up and partied and uh, filled life with uh, their definition of fun experiences. So as you go like from the moment of kindergarten all the way to what people actually did, the definition of great shifted for those people. Like probably because at some point along the line, they decided, you know, I used to think it would be great if I could do that. But you know, it's, I actually think it's great if I can do this or if I can resource this kind of life. So maybe you have your own ideas of greatness. Maybe it's like wealth, or maybe it's leaving a great legacy. Maybe it's uh, being in the esteem of others. Maybe it's having a lot of power. Maybe it's uh, getting some kind of accomplishment or series of accomplishments. Maybe it's just simply like how you treat people. So, so a note about all of that, like all of those ideas about greatness come from somewhere. Like some come from our families, some come from the cultures that we come up in, some come from, some actually like come from Christian values that were instilled in us, right? Some from our own desires, simply, right? Which means that at the core of all of them is like our different ideas about what it means to be great. And your version of great might be different from my version of great. So if that's true, like what if, what if, I want to live an objectively great life. Like, not just a life that I think is great, not just a life that you might think is great, but like, what if I want to live an actually great life? Not like, not just one that I make up. Like, not by the evaluation of my peers necessarily, not even necessarily great by my own self-evaluation, but objectively, really, truly great. Because I, like, the truth is, I probably need to listen to somebody who can make such an assessment. Right? Because I, I, I'm not in a position to make that assessment. Like maybe Jesus, right? Because he's God, he's creator, he's king, right? We've talked about this a lot recently. If anyone knows what great looks like, it's probably going to be Jesus. And you know, it's funny. Jesus actually comments on this very thing. So uh, Matthew eleven eleven. this is what he says. He says, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no greater, no one greater than John the Baptist. And it is this comment, this comment about John the Baptist being the greatest person who has ever been born. It's this comment that's going to lead us into a new series. So uh, for the next two weeks, we are going to be looking at the life of John the Baptist. Uh, his life, his ministry, his message, his death. Uh, and there's a reason for this, because in the first century Jewish world, John the Baptist became incredibly influential. Like, to the degree, the degree that uh, out of like the people mentioned in the Bible, he's one of the few people that we have resources outside of the Bible telling us that this guy existed and he had a lot of influence. Right, so, so if you go back to the first century, you can actually read first century sources mentioning John the Baptist and the people that he was gathering to himself. He was an itinerant preacher, right? This is what we hear in these other sources. He was a gatherer of many followers. Um, you also get, for what it's worth, notes about authorities being very concerned about the kind of influence that he has. 
right? So that's outside of the Bible, but then biblically what you have for John the Baptist is he's actually like a catalyst for the greatest series of events in all of history, right? Like Jesus's ministry on earth, John stands at the beginning of that ministry. So uh, back to Matthew eleven eleven, it says, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no greater than John the Baptist. And then at the end of that, Jesus is commenting, and he says something really interesting after that. He says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Meaning that, yes, there is something about John that was the greatest, and there is something about the, the people who are caught up in the kingdom, us, the church, right, that somehow can surpass John in that greatness, right? So that we could actually, Jesus could look at us at the end of our lives and, uh, and then on into eternity and into the new creation and look at us and tell us, you have lived truly great lives. So uh, then I want to ask the question, what is it about John that even the least of us, like the least of us in the church, the least of us in the kingdom cannot only emulate, but apparently improve upon. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So we're going to observe John's life, and really we're going to see three key characteristics that uh, clearly establish his greatness for us. So John chapter 1, verse 19, Garth uh, read this for us. It says, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So already, already the fact that Jews are sending priests and Levites from Jerusalem should clue us in to the fact that something is going on. Because uh, right now, a lot of people are going to John to hear what he has to say and to be influenced by him. Like, people are flocking to him to the degree that, like, religious leaders in Jerusalem need to figure out what's happening with John. And by the way, John is, like, out in the wilderness. He's out in the middle of the desert, just talking up a storm about something that, like, people are trying to understand. And so here's what we know. John is in the desert. He's actually baptizing people in the Jordan River. The journey from Jerusalem to where John is is about eight hours. Like it's an eight-hour walk from Jerusalem to where John is. It's a full day's journey. Which means that before like radio and before TV, like out in the desert, John is opening his mouth to talk to people And he's opening his mouth enough and to enough people that the things that he is saying are creating such a stir that they reverberate back to Jerusalem, right? So that people eight hours away in Jerusalem took the journey to hear him. Like eight hours, like uh, what is that? What's what's eight hours from here? Let's uh, maybe something in Pennsylvania or I don't know, like Ohio. Something in Ohio is a Cleveland. Who wants to go to Cleveland? But all right, let's pretend that Cleveland, something great is happening in Cleveland. We don't have radio. We don't have TV, but there's somebody just opening their mouth and talking and somehow it makes us back to us in Chicago that something is going on in Cleveland that we have to go see. Right? Like, that's the idea that's conveyed here. And so, these people were so engaged by John that they actually, like, start following him, start implementing his message into their lives. And so, I want to ask a question, uh, because I think it's important for us to understand this. What was it that made John so influential? Like, how did John become so influential? And there are really kind of two reasons for this. So, so number one, John's ministry was a movement among movements. 
It was a movement among movements. So, so they're in the middle of this time for Israel as they're stuck uh, in Rome. Like Rome has control of their land. There are Gentiles kind of walking all over their land. And uh, Rome is in power over the top of them. And this created for the Jewish people a, very much a sense of desperation, a sense that things are not the way that they are supposed to be because this is our land. We are supposed to have ownership of it. This is what God had promised to us. And so what every good Israelite understands is if there is somebody else in control of our land, what that must mean is that we are still under God's judgment. Right? Because if you read the scriptures of the Old Testament and what they convey about God's judgment, uh, frequently what they point to is other people will come in and take control of your land and you will have no say and you will be under their authority. Right, so uh, Deuteronomy 28 actually conveys this to us. And I just want to read some of this. I'm, you know, it's like the longest passage about if you do this, you will experience this judgment. And then it has like 50 different judgments for the people of Israel. Like if they do fail to implement God's commands, and if they fail to follow him, and if they go after other gods, then this is what they can expect. So I just want you to listen to some of these. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all of his commandments and statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Uh, The Lord will bring you and your king, whom you set over you, to another nation that your fathers have not known. And there you're going to serve gods of wood and stone. Uh, How about this? The sojourner who is among you shall actually rise higher and higher above you, and you shall come down lower and lower. Uh, He shall lend to you, and you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head and you shall be the tail. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It also shall not leave you grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds or the young of your flock. And remember, all of these things, this abundance, the flocks, the herds, the oil, all of these things speak of the abundance of this land, a land flowing with milk and honey that Israel was supposed to have. And other nations are going to come in and reap the rewards of that land, and Israel's not going to enjoy it. So, So all Jewish people, as they look at the situation that's happening with Rome being in power in this place, they understand really clearly, we are under the judging hand of God. And until this gets resolved, everything is broken for us. So, So what happens then is that movements arose to create solutions to this experience. Right, because they're like, there's this longing because things are not the way that they're supposed to be. There's this longing for the future Messiah who's supposed to come. And, uh, and then these movements come up and say, well, if we do these things, then God will bless us. Then God will give us our land back. Then God will deliver us. And so, so like there, we know of at least four different movements in this time that became really popular among the Jewish people. The Pharisees. At this time, their movement was moral perfection. 
That's the thing that they strove for. So they said, if you perform the kind of the commands of the law and implement them into your life, but not only the commands of the law, if you perform all of the series of impl- uh, implications of the commands of the law, if you take those and implement those into your life, and so what they did is they not only had like the, the 613 laws that were in the, the first five books of the Bible, but then they like piled laws on top of that and piled laws on top of that. And then if you do all of these things to like the perfect degree, we'll do them well enough and eventually the Messiah is going to come back. Right? So that was the movement among the Pharisees. The Sadducees, their movement was political involvement and government cooperation. Right? So if we can kind of be buddy-buddy with the people who lead our areas, uh, kind of make friends with our government leaders, uh, then we're going to have political influence and then through that political influence, we'll get our land back and get the things that we want. Then you have the Zealots which if you know about the zealots, they did not take the government cooperation route. They took the route that said, uh, we're going to go for open rebellion, right? We're going to uh, plan uh, times where we're going to kind of knock off Roman soldiers or uh, people who are in charge or cut off supply lines, right? Uh, and then you have the Essenes who, the Essenes literally, they just fled society, like they went out and formed their own communities in places out in the desert. And, uh, and then they said, we're going to get this right with our group here. And then as we get this right with our group here, God will eventually bless us and give us our land back. Right, so all of these movements provided a solution and what people were looking for was a solution. And John was at the Jordan River and he was out there talking and it just so happened that he was providing a solution as well. And the people were looking for a teacher or a system that could help them understand, like, what do we do about our current desperate situation? So you add to this kind of the movement of the Holy Spirit in this time, you add to this the longing for the Messiah, and you start to understand how John could start to become influential. But then the second thing that made him really influential was this, that his emphasis was on taking God at his word. All of those other um, other movements wanted to add something to God's word or wanted to, uh, to suggest a solution beyond God's word. And John's simple emphasis was on taking God at his word. Right? John knew, like the, the testimony of scripture is, if my people will hear my voice and turn back to me and repent, then I will be gracious to them. I will give them their land back. Right, so Second Corinthians or Second Chronicles seven fourteen, it says that if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Right, he knew John as he stands out there proclaiming. He knew the incredible value of repentance. Right, and he knew that this was always the thing that God was wanting His people to do. He knew that if God's people were going to see God move again, they had to start with and stick to the pattern of repentance in their lives. And then you have, as John speaks, the Holy Spirit pressing upon hearts as people hear the actual word of God and the actual solutions that God provides. And so then what does John do to get his influence? He simply goes out to the country and all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. Mark 1.5, that's what that is. John stood out there and he baptized people into repentance. 
right? Baptism, for what it's worth, baptism was the rite of purification for Gentiles. That's what it had arisen, which means the Gentile people, if you wanted to become a Jew, a proselyte, if you wanted to become a part of the Jewish religion, what you had to do is you had to undergo the rite of baptism, the ritual of baptism. The implication here, right? John's not out there baptizing Gentiles. He's baptizing Jews. The implication is the Gentiles aren't the ones that just need cleaning. We also need cleaning. Right? We need to get things right. So people came, and they confessed their sins, and they said, I want to change. I want to be different. And it was John's commitment to simply taking God at his word and inviting people in repentance, into repentance, that made him incredibly influential in the space and place that he was. And then all of that influence starts creating a stir back in Jerusalem. Okay, so, so now we're going to look at the Jews, and they're sending these people to come out and ask questions of John. So, so in John 1, 19 and 20, this is what it says. They asked him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So be very aware, like John knows everything that these people are thinking before they ask their questions. He is anticipating their thoughts about who they think he is, and he's answering according to his kind of uh, pre-planning here. Like, he knows all of the possibilities. He's actually, like, he's been listening to them and their teaching his whole life, so he knows what to anticipate, right? And one of the possibilities in their mind is that, hey, John is the Messiah, because he's gathering all of these people to follow him. So without them even asking the question, he makes sure to clarify out front, hey, I'm not the Messiah. That's not me. And then in verse 21, it goes on. It says, and so they asked him, what then are you Elijah? And he said, I am not, which is really interesting. So uh, Malachi 4, 5, and 6, this is one of the things. uh, it, It says this, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the father to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Least I come to strike the land with a decree of utter, utter destruction. So, so John the Baptist came and people were repenting and they were changing. And you know what? It's really interesting. John dressed like Elijah dressed. Like John kind of stepped into the role of Elijah. John modeled his ministry after Elijah's ministry. John's life paralleled Elijah's life in many ways. But here's the problem. When the Jews come and ask, are you Elijah? They're asking this question with all of their preconceived notions about what Elijah would do and what he was here for and who he was going to be. Actually, what they were looking for, they were looking for a literal reincarnation of Elijah. That's not John. They were looking for the day of the Lord, right? They're looking for kind of this final moment when God is going to judge his enemies. And actually, like, that's a ways off in the future, right? Like, right now, this is a a different time. It's like, in their mind, for them, it's Elijah first and then the Messiah. But for them, the Messiah was this victorious warrior, king. And that is not what Jesus had come to do. And so when they ask, are you Elijah, John, knowing all of their preconceived notions, and even though he has modeled his ministry after Elijah, he says, "Um, no, I'm not Elijah, right? Because if I say yes, you're going to get all of these different ideas about what I am here to do, right? And so Jesus Jesus answers this for us. If you look in Matthew 11, you know, uh, John uh, knew that he was the promised future Elijah. Uh, Jesus said uh, to his disciples when he was reflecting on John's ministry, you know, I tell you, John himself was Elijah, but he doesn't want to justify their false notions. And so 
as he recognizes kind of what they think his purpose is, he says, you know what? I'm not here for that purpose. I'm here for a different purpose that you don't understand. And so then they ask him another question, verse 21. He says, are you the prophet? And then John answered him, no, right? This is another reference to end-time Jewish figures. Uh, Again, they have preconceived notions, and John wants to keep things focused. So they said to him, who are you? Like, we need to give an answer to those who sent us. We need to give them something. You have all of this influence. You're amassing all of these people. What the heck is going on? Who are you? And so, uh, verse 23, it says this. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John says, I am here for one thing. Here for one thing. That the Lord is coming. Right? He is making his way here to this place where we are. And I'm making sure that he finds some people who are ready for him to get here. Right? Like, I'm making sure that he finds some people who are tired of pretending. I'm making sure that he finds people who actually take him at his word. I'm making sure that he finds people who are genuinely fed up with the sickness of sin in their lives. I'm making sure that he finds people who bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I'm not focused on political movements. I'm not focused on whitewashed tombs or power grabs or revolution. I am helping people see their need for personal repentance, transformation. Why? Because the Lord's coming. And if I don't do this, if I don't make sure that we are ready for personal transformation, if I don't make sure that we're ready to see him, then when he gets here, nobody's going to see him. Nobody's going to notice. Right, so, so John had a purpose, and that purpose was actually dictated by prophecy. And John came and he fulfilled it. Right, that role was to pe- prepare hearts, to prepare people, to make paths straight so that when the Lord came, people would know that the Lord is here. So verse 26, John answered them. I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know. What does he tell the Pharisees right here? He's saying, and guess what? Your hearts are not prepared to see him. You can't know him. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Right? He is here to point to somebody who is greater than him. Right? So think of John's incredible opportunity in this moment. Like he could have had book deals, right? Like he could have, he could have dined with kings. He could have, like, he could have made a ton of money before he handed things over, right? He could have taken this movement. He could have led these people into greatness. But John is single-minded in all of his efforts. He says, I'm here for one thing. I am preparing these people for a person. And there's coming a day when I'm not going to matter anymore because he's greater than I am. He's far more important than me. I'm preparing people for him. So in the midst of this movement that John had happening all around him, John never forgot his purpose. His focus on preparing all of his people for someone besides himself. And that is part of his greatness. And so the beginning of greatness for us this morning is this. 
that you would remember your Jesus-oriented purpose. Right? That's the start. That's what John did. He said, I'm here to make Jesus look good. Right? So if you're a Christian this morning, you have quite a similar function to what John's is, right? Because uh, in Acts 1.8, Jesus tells us, like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to go away, right? But your job, you're going to go wait for the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and he's going to empower you to be witnesses, Right? The same thing that John did. John stood out in the wilderness as a witness about Jesus, telling people about Jesus. And the existence of every Christian in the Christian church for millennia is we are witnesses. We testify about Jesus. Everything we do is about preparing people for somebody else besides us. Everything we do is about making someone else besides us look good. All our actions are about the kind of attention that we draw to him. So that's a significant piece of John's greatness, and that's where greatness also begins for us. So then we're going to look at another piece of his life and see what else there is to discover here. So uh, in Matthew 11, 2 through 3, uh, this is what Jesus is, he's talking, uh, some people come. So in verse 2, it says, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples. So he's sending these people to Jesus to ask questions of him. And they said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So John is stuck in prison. So what he knows is that he did all of this work preparing people for Jesus, and then he kind of like uh, fell off the map, right? He, he ends up going somewhere. He ends up actually getting thrown in prison. John uh, becomes a nobody at this point, and he has very little awareness. It says that he had heard about things that the Messiah was doing, but like his understanding of what was happening with Jesus was very small, and he spent his life dedicated to this thing, and John ends up in prison. And so he's like, you know, what's going on? Like John questions. He's potentially even at this point despairing for what it's worth because he has spent his life dedicated to telling people about Jesus and now John's in prison. But notice what he questions, right? He questions his own experience. He does not question whether or not the Messiah is coming, right? He questions whether or not he misunderstood things. That's really interesting to me. He doesn't say, um, are you the one who is to come or is this even happening in the first place, right? That's not what he says. He says, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Meaning in John's mind, he's, he's going, did I waste my life? Did I spend my energy preparing people for a person who wasn't actually the Messiah? He's like, but his confidence is in fact like the Messiah is still coming. Like we're still looking for him, right? But did I waste my life? So that's, that's very interesting. I think what this points to is that even in the midst of his doubt and even in the midst of his potential despair, he still unwaveringly trusted God's word because he knew that God had promised a Messiah and he knew that a Messiah was coming. He was very confident of that. What he questioned was whether or not he had wasted his life pointing to the wrong person. So, uh, this is how much, this is the degree to which he trusted God's word. He's like consumed with it, right? It's promises, it's demands on God's people, right? Here's the crazy thing. He's out there preaching and he actually thinks that people can like start obeying God's word, 
right? He's preaching to hundreds, if not thousands of people out by the Jordan, calling them to be purified uh, through baptism. And, and then he does this. So this is really interesting. He's not only calling all of God's people like from this place in, uh, in the desert to repentance, but then he, it's crazy. In Mark chapter six, we read about this other thing that he does. In verse 17, he says, for it was Herod, this is just giving us some back, background, but it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her, right? And this is what John did. John was so consumed with God's word and so consumed with calling people to obedience that, that John actually approached Herod, and this is what he said in verse 18, for John had been saying to Herod, who is, by the way, the king of the Jewish people at this point, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Right, so John, he's like, he has this opportunity to call people to repentance. And, and he's not just calling the Jewish people to repentance, but he wants to go, it's like, if I'm gonna make an impact, I need to go and talk to the king. Right? And if I can get him to buy this message, think of what it means for the kingdom. Think of the people who are going to be prepared at that point. So he goes and says, hey, Herod, you're breaking the law. You're out of bounds with what God has said. It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Right? So get inside his head for a second. Like He wants to have this movement of repentance. Like He goes to the king and he's trying to help prepare the king to see Jesus. And uses God's word to do it. So, so I think we see God, John's greatness here too. Because before John trusts his experience, before John trusts his perspective, he looks to God's word. Like God's word is what he uses to prepare the crowds of people. It's what he uses to call the king to repentance. Even when he despairs, he knows that God's word is trustworthy. His confidence was in God's word. So uh, the next step of our beginning of greatness for us this morning is this. Be unwaveringly confident in God's word. Like goodness, we, we live in a time and an age that gives us quite a different message than that. Right, what we're told is actually like you need to know yourself. You need to figure out what you want. You need to do what works for you. The message that we get then is that your experience is actually what is trustworthy. Like, if it feels right, do it. If it doesn't feel right, don't do it. And I wonder how frequently, like, we as Christians buy that message because it's a really, like, it's a compelling message. It speaks to us in some pretty powerful ways. But that message, if we follow it through, cannot last for long because uh, the word says the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Lord, the word of the Lord stands forever. So even your preferences as you grow old change and shift and become other things. But if we show, if we show consistent confidence in something outside of ourselves, right, if we show confidence in God's word, if we obey it, if we change when it calls us to change, if we stay committed to the Lord uh, and what he's pointing us toward, if we confess the sin that it reveals, if we let it convince our hearts of what's true, then we show that we trust things that last forever. And apparently Jesus thinks that's a, pretty, like, that's a good thing. That's a great thing. 
Okay, so finally, then, uh, and if you read on in Mark 6, it's really interesting, this whole scenario that takes place. Because John goes, and he says to the king, hey, you know what, you have to repent. And then uh, it just so happens that people in Herod's house don't like this message that John gave. Uh, To the point that uh, Herodias wants John's head on a platter and eventually gets what she asks for. John dies because he called the king to repentance. So, like, why, why would John put forth that kind of energy? Like, he knew who Herod was. He knew uh, the power that Herod had. But he thought, if I can get Herod, maybe we can spawn a bigger movement. John knew the incredible threat to his life that existed. But in John's estimation, the risk to his life was worth the reward of more people knowing Jesus of Jesus' name being made greater. So it's interesting. John lived a life that was open to sacrifice, right? He starts by going out into the desert, which, by the way, means he's basically playing survivor man out in the wilderness, right? He's away from civilization. He's away from resources that can be given to him. Uh, He is out there fending for himself, eating locusts and honey and uh, dressed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, right? Like he is out there in the middle of nowhere and he's risking, uh, you know, everything that comes with being in civilization. So he does that. He then comes up and challenges the political and religious status quo of the day, Right? That comes with a certain amount of risk. And then he finally goes up and like, calls the corrupted king to repentance. That comes with a massive amount of risk. And he moved from one of those things on to the next, on to the next, knowing all of the sacrifice that came with it, knowing full well the possibilities of challenge that he would experience, knowing the hardship that it would include, and knowing that he even might lose his life in doing that, and knowing full well that everything that he might lose would be lost for a purpose, right? So the beginning of greatness, and this is our final one this morning, the beginning of greatness is that, just like John, that we would be prepared to make sacrifices for that same purpose. So as we look back at, at Matthew 11, uh, John's disciples, they had just kind of made note of his despair, of his questions. Are you the one we should look for? Or should we look for somebody else? And Jesus responds to their questions with God's word, right? He says to to John's disciples, uh, the blind are seeing, the lame are walking, Uh, people who can't hear are having their ears open. All of this pointed back to prophecy about what was going to happen when God started to move powerfully among his people. So so Jesus' response when when uh, John's disciples are questioning, his response is, hey, John, you know where your confidence is in God's word? Here's God's word. And here are the things that are happening. Right? So Jesus, Jesus could have taught the disciples at that point a lesson about how, maybe how you shouldn't despair. He could have come down hard on John for, for uh, you know, something that looks like doubt. Right? But these characteristics are, in John are so strong, his commitment is so unwavering, that Jesus' words about him are that among those born of women, he's the greatest that has ever come. And here's why, here's why, and this is the main point this morning. True greatness devotes everything 
to making much of Jesus. Right? Like if you want to be actually great, objectively great, according to what the word of God says, like true greatness devotes everything to making much of Jesus. Okay, so what? So what? We have a couple this morning. So number one, there's a result, something we can walk away with. Um, I want to call us to resist spiritual narcissism and make Jesus the point. And what is spiritual narcissism? Uh, I'll answer that by asking a simple question. Who is the main character of your life? Who is the main character of your life? For John the Baptist, it was like all about Jesus, right? He, he made a decision at a certain point that my life is going to be about somebody else greater than me, right? It was about making a claim and influence and everything that Jesus could do. It was pointing people to Jesus. And we have a tendency, interestingly enough, to like want to receive Jesus' benefits but stay the main character of our story. Right? Like, we want the good things that Jesus gives us, but we would like the story to still be about us. Right? And that is a pride and a narcissism that we need to resist. Like, we don't treat God like he exists for us, but we exist for him. Like, we don't get to decide truth for ourselves, but we let God tell us what is true. We don't make demands of God. We submit ourselves to him. Like, we don't consume. We give, right? Those are kind of the easier aspects of this. But there is actually kind of like a harder level to this. And this is like religious people. We probably have the hardest time with these things because there is like a realm in which you can be very religious and still have your story be about you, right? Lives can be lived in devotion to God and his purposes. Lives can be lived and making much of Jesus. But then maybe you have like a somewhat successful ministry. Or maybe you're part of a church that gains influence over thousands of people. Or maybe you are able to powerfully impact the lives of others with your your words or with the way that you meet with them one-on-one. And if we're not careful, us very religious people, we might get into situations where we start saying things like, look at how great I am in my ministry. You know, I know a lot about how to minister to people well. And everything I do, my ministry does really, really well. My service with people does really, really well. Oh, this this church that we've built together, this church must be better than all those other churches because of how well it's doing. Right? And I think especially, especially people with leadership qualities or tendencies, and I need to talk to myself here too, Right? Like, we need to get the message. If you have influence, it is not your influence. It's Jesus' influence. If you have a ministry, it's not your ministry. It's Jesus' ministry. If you have success, it's Jesus' success, not yours. If you have skill, that skill exists for Jesus, not for you. Right? Like, our organizations, our buildings, our churches, our ministries, our methods, the grass withers and the flower fades. Those things will not last. Your influence will fade. John's influence faded. Jesus comes on the scene. John hands over his disciples and says, okay, it's time for you to go. We are not the best at what we do. God is always raising up people who are going to do the next thing. Our story and our efforts and our energy and our ministry, at the end of the day, they are not about us. 
we gladly look for what Jesus is doing. We gladly make those things about Jesus because we rejoice in everything and making much of Jesus. And my second so what this morning is this. Don't just confess Christ. Obey his word. Don't just confess Christ. Obey his word. Right, the call to follow Jesus is a call to be witnesses. And witnesses is about more than just what the words that leave our mouths say. It's about what our actions say. The way that we live our lives. And so we can tend to think, you know what, uh, because we're good evangelicals, we confess with our mouths and we believed in our heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead and so we are saved. And so since we're still sinners anyway, but we're saved, we can just kind of live how we want and, and someday, you know, eventually one day we'll obey, we'll get there. But obedience isn't that big of a deal because we're saved already, right? And we can get into this line of thinking. But the call to Jesus is a call into baptism, right? Like, I mean, yes, bapt- our physical, literal baptism, but also like the baptism of the Holy Spirit, right? And it's the word baptism is used because it's saying we need to be cleansed. It's a call to say, I don't know what's best for me. I need to repent. My mind needs to change. Right? I can't decide for myself. I need God to tell me what is good for me. I need to let my life display that my confidence is in something outside of myself, and the degree to which like, we obey something besides God's word, it represents the degree to which we lack confidence in God's word. Right? So the call to salvation for us is not just a call out of hell and to heaven. It's a call to, to recognize a better source of wisdom and goodness and what is good for our lives besides ourselves. And so our witness becomes effective when we know that we were hopeless apart from Jesus' shed blood. And we know now that we have a hope in something outside of ourselves besides ourselves. And that hope for us is displayed in the degree to which we continue bearing fruit, keeping with repentance. So uh, just in closing, you know, and... This question is kind of maybe overused or whatever. But um, just process with me. If you died today, where are you going to go? No, that's not what the question I'm going to ask. If you were to die today and you had a funeral, what would the words at your funeral say about what your life was pointed towards? The people who stood up and spoke, the ones who wanted to say something, what would they say about the direction that your life was oriented. Uh, I just had the opportunity, I had a friend of mine uh, from Village Church who uh, passed away of COVID uh, in his 60s, really healthy guy. Uh, so it's just a very unexpected loss. Um, and uh, went to his funeral. Tons of non-Christians there, by the way. Because he had an incredible, just personal outreach ministry. Um, and, uh, and so he you know, all of these different people come up. And, uh, you know, the Christian testimonies, what they had to say about him and his life, that was really good and really, really valuable. And a lot of people had a lot of great things to say. Like, he's devoted to making sure that people knew Jesus, right? He was uh, devoted to his family. He was devoted to integrity, right? Like, we saw all of these really good things. But what the, like, the best part about the things that people had to say were the non-Christians who came up and talked about him. And said, there, there's nobody in my life who has 
served me and made sure I was okay and taking care of me as well as this guy has. Right? That uh, when I see other people leave a person behind, all of those other people may go off, but he was always the one to stick behind with that person that was getting left behind. Right, to see non-Christians testify about the witness in this guy's life, not just through his words, but through his actions. And the way that other people were compelled to look to Jesus because of the way that he lived his life. That's the kind of life that I want to live. So I'm going to transition us into communion this morning because there is like kind of this latent question that might be existing out there because I said like everything has to go to Jesus, like devote everything to Jesus. And you might go, okay, but is Jesus worth that much of my devotion? Right? Is he worth, like, I get that he's worth like a little bit or some of my life or maybe like an hour out of my time each week. I get that, but is he worth like everything, every piece of my devotion? Right, so the last few weeks, we've had the opportunity to walk through uh, kind of this perspective. Jesus in an insidious world was the series that we walked through. And we talked about who Jesus is, the fact that he has come into this dark world. And we talked about a Jesus who is kind of the meaning of all of his existence, a Jesus who gives life to dead things, a Jesus who is light in the midst of darkness, a Jesus who is grace and truth, right? Like this is who Jesus is. And then what does he do? He comes. And he lays down his life that we might get life. Right? He allows himself to be beaten and hung upon a cross so that by his blood he might pay for the opportunity for us to even have a chance at making God's name great. For us to even have a chance to walk with God and have a relationship with God. And so through his blood, we have the opportunity to be made right with God. That is what Jesus does. So that we can joyfully walk in relationship with God. So we can know what it means to have a creator who loves us and is for us. And a father who wants to lift us up and raise us up in the way that he intended for us to go. And so the message of the Bible, the message of Scripture, the thing that all of it points to is that the God of the universe died for your salvation. And time and time again, he shows that he is worth every ounce of what we might have to give and devote to him. So we're going to partake in communion this morning. If you haven't done so already, I just invite you to pull this little piece of film on the top of your communion cup back. Um, in these, uh, this, these cups, we have a piece of bread, or styrofoam, if you will, and then, uh, and then some, some juice. Uh, and, uh, and these things represent for us the elements, the, the pieces that Jesus gave up so that we might have life. That he took his body and he allowed his body to be broken for our sakes. That he allowed his blood to be shed for our sakes. And then what he did is he commanded his disciples and everybody who came after them uh, to, to do these acts as kind of a public testimony of who he is. And that every time we do this, we together remember what he accomplished for us, but then we actually like proclaim something to other people about where our identity is, what our life is about. And so, uh, so in a moment, we're going to take a moment of silence to reflect to thank Jesus for actually like giving us something great for our life to be about, for saving us, for accomplishing the work of God for our sakes. We're going to uh, reflect on that. And then after we reflect, we're going to sing together. 
And then after we sing, we'll partake of communion together. Uh, if you're with us and you're not a believer in Jesus this morning, uh, we're really glad that you're here. This, this act of communion, this is uh, an act where we proclaim something that is true about our identity. We are actually making a proclamation about what we believe, what we're invested in. And if so, if you can't make that proclamation this morning, uh, I just ask you to kind of set the cup aside, not join us in this action. We wouldn't want you to say something that you yourself don't believe. And, and if you're joining us from another church, we invite you absolutely, please partake with us. If Jesus is your everything, if Jesus is your identity, then we would invite you to partake. So let's take a moment of silence just to reflect on what it was that Jesus has accomplished, that he would forgive our sins for the ability to walk with God. Lord Jesus, you are so good to us. Lord, and I acknowledge even my own tendency to quickly forget what it is that you've called me to be about. Lord, I want to confess that to you, and I want to even confess my desire that you would shift and change my thinking to even the, the slightest of my moments, even the things that seem insignificant, how um, even the smallest of those things can be done in devotion to you. Lord, I, I ask that you would speak to and, and change hearts in the midst of this moment as we remember what it was that you gave, that you might purchase everything for us, that we might be devoted to you. And we thank you for the gift, Jesus, of being able to walk with you, of knowing your presence with us. Holy Spirit, we thank you that uh, for the reminders that you apply of that to our hearts and to our lives. And uh, as we walk in obedience with you, that uh, it is a, another reminder and another reflection of who bought us, that who we are for. Lord Jesus, teach us what it means to have our lives about somebody who is greater than us. Thank you for this gift of your blood shed that we might be forgiven. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.